episode of the official SPGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Um, here I am again. It's another of the podcasts and a change of pace, I think, because today we're heading north, up to the Netherlands, to Rotterdam, and to the Erasmus Medical Center. Well, I, I tell a lie. We're not at the Erasmus Medical Center. We're in the study of one of the professors of pediatric gastroenterology there who is working from home today. That's Dr. Lissy de Rita, again, a pediatric gastroenterologist, whose principal interests are inflammatory bowel disease and a different kind of inflammation of the bowel, the kind of inflammation and damage that are caused by ingesting button batteries. She has been one of the prime motors of a statement of position that Espigan has taken regarding these uh, these things. They, I say these things because they're wonderful to have, but boy, when they're out of control, do they do a lot of damage. Dr. Zekreder, may I call you Lissy? Yes, please. Okay. Well, the first question for you then is, are you a baker? No, I'm not. <laughs> well, actually, I am sometimes, but, but I wouldn't call it like a real baker. Not a real baker. Well, you'll be wondering why I asked you that question. I do. <laughs> the answer is simple. <laughs> it's because I was getting ready a couple of batches of the brownies, American cooking that I hand out at Christmas time to my Hungarian neighbors. It's in the nature of a bribe. I give them a half a batch of brownies and I say, I made these myself. <laughs> I hope they're good. <laughs> and please, um, in the new year, be as lovely to me as you have been in this past year by forgiving all of the mistakes that I made. I was trying to get the ingredients right, weighing them out, and all of a sudden, my scale went doolally. And I thought, I guess I need to replace the batteries, so I got another pack, pulled out the old ones, and said to myself, do you know, I'm going to be talking with Lissy de Ritter about what these batteries do and the damage they can cause, and I wonder just how much damage they can do to themselves. So I dropped the two batteries into a glass of water and went on with my baking. And the next day I looked at the batteries and they were covered with the nastiest brown sludge that you can imagine. Lots of it, too. Whatever was inside them had leaked out and was busily digesting the batteries. And I thought, jeepers creepers, if they can do that to themselves, what won't they do to a child's gullet? And so here we are. Tell us some of your horror stories about button ingestions and the kids that have gotten into trouble. Ah, now I understand your question. Yeah, I'm afraid we all uh, um, encountered these things because these button batteries are all around us. So this actually is a good example. When you're baking, you stumble on a, a battery which seems empty, but not really is empty still. And children stumble on it too. Um, and um, yeah, they easily swallow it because it looks like shiny and round and it 
tingles a bit on your tongue, but then all of a sudden someone comes in the room and they are like, uh, what is happening? And whoops, the battery is swallowed. It's down and, and gone. But that's an observed ingestion. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's observed, but it might not be appreciated. In other words, mom comes into the room and you say, <gasps> you inhale, the battery goes down. Whether it goes into your Sunday throat, your trachea, or goes into your gullet, your esophagus, matter of luck. And maybe mom doesn't know what's happened. And then, then the problems really begin. Yeah, that is completely right, because in case of an observed ingestion, at least you can undertake your action and you know what's going on. But if you have not observed it, and this is this two-year-old who will not him or herself tell something happened, then first you don't see any problems, and then there is this uh, not willing to drink, not willing to eat, having a wheeze, having some respiratory symptoms. And, well, how often does that happen in a two-year-old? So it's very difficult then to recognize in an early phase that such an awful and actually life-threatening uh, event has happened. And that's difficult for the parents, but it's also difficult for the physicians for the primary caregivers, unfortunately. Right. If, if a grandchild of mine were witnessed swallowing a button battery, say one of the button batteries that I had left on the kitchen cooktop until I could get around to disposing of it properly, well, I'd scoop that kid up and I'd be at the hospital within a quarter of an hour. And I imagine that then they'd call in the teams to say, First, imaging studies, where is it? And second, which teams do we need to use to get it out? You need somebody to guard the airway, maybe an HNO, uh, an otolaryngologist. But you also need a gastroenterologist either to fetch it out, or is there any role to pushing it all the way down into the stomach? Yeah, so if this is this observed um, um, ingestion of the button battery, um, and you know um, we now have two hours, and within those two hours we really want to have this button battery out, because if we manage to do so, then the risk of real mucosal damage is relatively low. Um, in my hospital, where we had some dreadful cases and actually also a fatality, the whole team is very aware of the uh, risk and also of the um, need to be very fast. So if I get this call of a button battery ingestion in a toddler in the esophagus, because usually it's a referral and the x-ray already has been done and we know it's stuck in the esophagus, um, then it's always very important how high it is, so how <laughs> Uh, um, yeah, if it's really high and above the clavicles, then we for certain also need the ENT doctor. If it's lower, we do not necessarily need the ENT doctor, but we do need the anesthesiologist, the team in the operation theater. And as soon as the child then comes to the hospital, it's immediately brought to the operation theater and is brought under a general anesthesia. 
and then we uh, usually try to take it out sometimes if it's really distal in the esophagus and, and if it's really difficult to get it out it is also possible to give it a very little push into the push. stomach and then get it out but that should be done with lots of caution and the longer it's stuck in the esophagus the more hazardous that becomes actually you've weakened the tissues around where the battery is lodged and if you give it a shove with your endoscope then you might just shove it right through the esophageal wall Yow. yeah it is so you really have to be aware of that and and when it's really lodged for a l short time then the, this risk is is lower but not absent and as soon as it's over there for two hours or, or later then you really should avoid all pushing and you have <laughs> to take it out as gentle mm -hmm. um, yeah as possible when you talk about all of the logistics that you have to assemble the operating theater the nursing the anesthesiologist the additional teams that works i reckon at a big pediatric hospital where everything is set up to go. And maybe in the Netherlands, where, where life is compact, where you're not that far away one from another, that's feasible. But I'll tell you, Hungary's got a lot of empty space. So does Austria. And getting first to the doctor and then to the regional hospital I don't think you're going to have two hours in most of these, even in the witnessed ingestion cases. Is that your experience as well? Yeah, it is. Um, um, of course, not my personal experience because I am in a luxurious position um, to be a pediatric gastro in the Netherlands, where as exactly as you uh, said, um, we always have a, well, a relatively big hospital nearby with a pediatric gastroenterologist and with a team that is able to um, um, secure the airway of the child etc um, but within the bottom battery task force we now uh, initiated uh, for example we have uh, dr ruth barker who is a, a pediatrician and mostly involved in emergency care and she, she then tells us stories about Australia, where it may happen that it takes like 12 hours before a child is in a hospital where they have the possibility to take it out. And well, 12 hours with this battery lodged in your esophagus, that is really bad news because the risk of severe complications having occurred already actually is high. Um, that 12 hours yeah. until you get out of the outback into an urban center in Australia, and that battery is sizzling away all the time. There used to be, <laughs> in the United States, a meme called, what to do until the doctor comes. You know it's bad, you know kind of what's going on, it's a witnessed ingestion, but you can't get to the doctor within the two hour time. What should local practitioners be telling parents we can maybe 
How can they reduce, if it is possible to reduce, the injury with the battery still inside you? Yeah, that is a very important question. Uh, but unfortunately, that is not easy to answer. Um, in each case, parents should not try to have the child like throw up or, or anything because that actually is dangerous. So once uh, it's ingested, they shouldn't undertake any action to get it out. Um, they should, of course, not give any drinks or feeds anymore. Um, and um, yeah, there is this um, study performed that is also uh, been published on um, the um, administration of honey and um, that may be a consideration to give a spoon of honey every 10 minutes but I must also say that there are pros and cons on um, the administration of honey and the very most important thing parents should do is come to the hospital as soon as possible. That should be priority one, two, and three. So even if it's far, come to the hospital where they can take it out. Mom is in the back seat of the Jeep with the baby and the jar of honey and every 10 minutes, and I'm driving as fast as I can. But what, uh, what are the drawbacks to administering honey? You, you said that there are cons. Yeah, there, Tell me about those. Yeah. Well, first thing is the evidence is not very strong. Um, and that is um, because it's very difficult to do this research leading to um, strong evidence because um, we can um, think of this randomized controlled trial where in half of the patients presenting with the bottom battery lodged in their esophagus, we will administer honey while preparing um, to take it out in the um, operation theater and in the other half we don't and then we compare the risk of complications. But I think everyone now listening to this podcast will recognize or that that never will work because it's well, uh, too little patients, too difficult, uh, etc. Um, so um, we yeah, have to deal with the indirect evidence that we um, have. And um, that was a piglet study, wasn't it? Yeah. So that, that indeed were piglets and piglets are not small children. Um, so mm. there were um, um, cadaver esophagus of piglets, but also live piglets. So I think they really did a nice uh, study. Um, yeah, but but of course you can debate how reliable it is. Um, maybe in future, um, if we have proper registries where it's also um, noted whether honey has been administered or not, with long-term follow-up, um, maybe that will help us to better know whether indeed it is of help. But at the moment, um, it, it, it may be the case, um, but we're not sure yet. And you can imagine that if the battery is there for a long time and there's already a complication, then you shouldn't administer honey. And also the very young ones, 
um, <coughs> we always advise not to give honey. Um, so yeah, these are the cons. You're between a rock and a hard place, and the only thing that really helps is speed. Speed and accuracy of diagnosis and getting the darn thing out. I understand. Yeah. Well, that's with the witnessed ingestions. And now you've got um, little Priscilla has been droopy for the last day, day and a half. She even is starting to drool a little bit. Um, now what? Maybe the dad, I mean, mom or dad is going to say, I expect, give her another day. She'll be fine. Wait until the morning, especially with COVID going on. Do we really want to take her into a doctor's office where all of us can catch something? Tell us some of your anecdotes along those lines. Yeah, well, as soon as um, the bottom battery ingestion is in your differential, and today it's very easy, right? Because this is our topic. So little Priscilla, we all know that can be the case. Mm -hmm. um, but as soon as it is in your differential, even if it's somewhere low, because the respiratory tract infection is much more likely because that just happens all the time, mm -hmm. I would say take an x-ray. Because I would prefer to have lots of x-rays to exclude having a button battery lodged over there than to miss it. And if you if it would be a button battery and you would wait another day, then the child might present with a bleed because the battery already has migrated to the large vessels. And then mm -hmm. we are in trouble. The child is in big trouble <laughs> and the team too, because these are really challenging situations. All right, I've got an X-ray and I've got something that's round and metal density. Um, maybe it's just a nickel, a five cent piece, an American five cent piece. Maybe it's a, a bus token, doesn't matter. Get it out, treat it as if it's a button battery because work from the worst scenario? Is that the idea? Well, n yes and no. Um, in, as long as in doubt, I would go uh, um, indeed for the worst scenario. Um, but actually, um, the um, button batteries are um, quite easy to recognize once oh. you know oh. what to look at. Because the button battery has this halo, so um, around the outside uh, circle, there is this whitish inner circle, and that really is um, um, pathognomonic for the button battery. And as long as you know where to look for, then you will um, always recognize that, unless the X-ray is really of um, mm -hmm. suboptimal quality. And because if there's a coin there, especially when it's very low in the esophagus and it's it's not that big of a coin, then you don't have this within two hours situation. So that, that may well influence your management. You said that you had encountered at your institution, even at your institution, where people are thinking about this possibility, where it's higher on the differential diagnosis than it would be in many other settings that there have been some bad outcomes. 
what kind of trouble have the kids got into? Yeah, I would like to tell actually two stories and I'll try to, to be a bit short, but we had this one um, child presenting in another hospital um, with um, a bleed. All of a sudden the child really vomited lots of... Oh my um, heavens. Yeah. Oh. And um, actually, once the child arrived in our hospital, because in the referring hospital, they just didn't know how to deal with the problem. And they, by then, realized that there was this bottom battery that had perved to a large vessel. Um, but by the time the child was in our center, unfortunately, it was too late. So this child... Exsanguinated, exsanguinated. Yeah, I did. Bled yeah. out. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. uh, that would stick with me. I think yeah. it will stick with me. It does. It does. Yeah. And the other story, the other. The well, the other story, and I think the the hemorrhages that occur or the the, the bleeds really are the the uh, most urgent ones. Um, we also had children with um, perfs in their uh, trachea, for example, and that takes like. A very long time to recover but in the end usually they do but the other uh, story also was this bleed where um, the child was having this respiratory infection at least it was the diagnosis in mm -hmm, the hospital mm -hmm. and then at a certain point the child deteriorated and then also started to bleed and then our um, um, emergency doctor or the intensive care doctor came to pick up the child and made a photo because at that point still no one was aware what was going on so then they made this x-ray to check the position of the tube of the tube of course and boy look look what's in there yeah uh -huh. so that was really a very nasty surprise for all of them Mm. And then all of a sudden it was clear what was going on. So the child was brought to our hospital and this was um, when I uh, was on service. Um, so um, the ICU doc called me and of course I jumped in the car and went to the hospital. Um, but at that point, um, the endoscopy is not the first thing you should do anymore. Because if you would proceed with the endoscopy and, and if you would be able to uh, um, reach the baton battery, which maybe you won't, probably you won't, but even if you would and you would pull it out, you can make things a lot worse. So then first you need to be very aware where is the baton battery lodged, what damage is occurring and what specialist do you need um, yeah, to be as cautious as possible. So in this case, obviously, obviously you need the uh, cardiothoracic surgeon. Cardiovascular, cardiothoracic surgeon, and you need a fairly extensive set of imaging studies, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. CT of the neck yeah. and, and of the upper thorax. Yeah, and also of the um, vessels. And of the vessels to make sure that, God forbid, that in taking the battery out, you remove the tamponade that has kept the vessels from bleeding. Yeah, absolutely. Oh boy, oh boy. Yeah. Well, this is all beautifully illustrated in, a, in an algorithm, a set of flowcharts that you've put together 
for the position paper. Was there, as you assembled the position paper, were there any controversies? Did it, was there any substantial divergence of opinion as to what ought to be done? Did you have a hard time achieving the consensus that the paper represents? Yeah, well, actually, there were some things that we had uh, quite some uh, debate on, which I always like, actually, because it only will improve the quality of the the, uh, the paper and the advice given in the given in the paper. So, for example, the honey um, administration that we already uh, um, mm -hmm. discussed. Um, you can be a believer or a non-believer, and it's. Um, um, it depends whether you focus on the potential uh, benefit or on the potential risks, what advice to give. And um, yeah, as, as you will read in the paper, we now solved it to uh, state consider and to really um, give the uh, pros and the cons carefully. So within individual situations, a doctor can decide whether to, in this case, give this advice or I understand, I understand. When I think of the Dutch intellectual tradition, and of course Erasmus is part of that, skepticism is the most important part of a Dutchman's character. So I understand why, <laughs> I understand why you were not entirely convinced by the piglet and honey study. Um, were there other points of controversy beside that one? Yeah, so another point of controversy um, was the advice um, that if a button battery has been in the st stomach, ah. but if you don't know what has happened before that, because um, the ingestion has been uh, um, at least 12 hours ago um, or even before that, then you also should consider to um, check the esophagus. And that is because um, um, if this bottom battery before migrating to the stomach has been lodged in the esophagus unnoticed because no one was aware, um, then uh, um, if you don't check, um, there uh, may be mucosal damage in the esophagus. Um, and because of the um, electrolysis ongoing and the um, toxics, that are there, um, you and the mucosal damage may progress to also, um, yeah, make a perforation. So perforation that is also something down the road. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that and and if you are not aware, you don't check, you can miss it, and then, like months later, the child can present with nasty complications. But that is something that also was under debate because you can imagine that in many children once in the stomach um, it, it, it has not been lodged in the esophagus for a long time on the other hand um, you you do not want to miss the ones in whom it did because of the nasty consequences so better safe than sorry so that is why we put it in the algorithm after having our discussions so unobserved ingestion, battery in the stomach, better safe than sorry, and have a look at the esophagus. Understood. Yeah. But now, here we are in the stomach, and up in front of us looms the pylorus. 
how many button batteries make their way successfully through the pyloric channel? Yeah, so that is interesting and, and also uh, difficult to explain, but, but we know that based on um, quite some evidence actually that once this button battery is in stomach, then um, in the vast majority of cases, the uh, button battery uh, passes un uneventful. Uh, the <laughs> How? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that that's so, so. So apparently, in the esophagus, where the button battery is lodged, and the um, esophagus really cramps around it in this environment where it's, uh, um, yeah, you have all the the fluids going on, um, and the electrolysis that is then activated. These are apparently, unfortunately, the perfect circumstances to uh, create a lot of damage. And in the stomach, that's not the case. And also in the bowel, where um, it just passes, um, um, we very rarely um, see uh, events of that. So once it's in the stomach, um, and not the situation that it has been unobserved and likely um, uh, with a delay, then um, the advice within um, the paper is to uh, really wait for two to four weeks and instruct the parents to control the stools. Mm -hmm. And if they do not find the button battery, um, then um, check again. Come and on if, back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and if, if it's um, after that period still in the stomach, um, then of course there is again this indication for an endoscopic removal. Do you have any tips for how best to take care of an esophagus that's been burnt but not very severely damaged? You've got the battery out, and clearly there's been some damage. What do you do with the child and with the parents to keep them in? Does the child stay overnight for observation? When the child goes home, on what regimen? Yeah, so um, it is important to realize that if there is mucosal damage, that the chance that it deteriorates um, is uh, quite likely. So um, um, first I, I would admit the child in the hospital. I would start um, a PPI to protect the esophagus, a bit depending on uh -huh. the um, extent of the how, how severe the mucosal damage is. If it's very shallow, maybe antibiotics are not needed, but in case of doubt, I would also start antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And then first, um, um, the child should be kept um, sober. Um, it also depends on um, the mucosal damage, whether you want to do a second look or um, if you want to do um, um, esophagram. Um, and if then um, there is no sign of a perforation, you can start with liquids. And if that goes okay, you can step by step um, introduce go on to additional the solids, food items. Yes, first okay. soft. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and and send everybody home with a set of parents who are enormously relieved that it wasn't worse, and who have a new determination to go through their house and to lock up every button battery. We started this chat with my talking about my scale. Now, I'm I'm not the, the 
the best person with small things that slide open and have to be popped open. Um, it took me a little while to get those old button batteries out of the pocket on the underside of the scale. But it could be done with a bit of thumb pressure and a bit of determination. And one thing about a toddler is they are all determination. How do... Well, it seems to me that the best way to get button batteries out of kids' throats is to make it very difficult to get them out of either their original packaging or the spot in the key fob, in the scale, in the what-have-you, where they're sitting. How are these approaches to manufacturing and design to be implemented? How can you, in Europe, where you have unitary approaches to a lot of these things, is there a move underway to say, you need to get a screwdriver, at least, to open a button battery socket in a device? Yeah, thank you very much. Of course, um, prevention is uh, so much more important than management after. I mean, I would really dream of a situation where I don't have to take these button batteries out because they just are not ingested anymore. And after this case that I had, actually, uh, that, that was when, for me, this all started. Like, I don't want to have this in my hospital Never again, and, and not anywhere in the world either. Um, so um, um, I also contacted um, people from industry. Aha, um, aha, aha. And um, yeah, um, so things like having uh, screwed locked compartments are essential. Um, and also um, there are new techniques hopefully on the way where if you have to um, um, take out the old battery and put in a new one, that the new one only comes free if you first put your old one in, because this moment of change, this is the um, dangerous handling, because that is when people forget to store the old one, leave it behind or it drops on the floor. And this uh, small one, uh, they are <laughs> very good in finding or in <laughs> taking out uh -huh. in case not securely screwed. Mm -hmm. um, and and um, also there, yeah, it is important to um, um, all the time ask attention for that because there also are... Um, uh, like things where the, it is screw locked, but then it's in such a soft material that um, the toddler only has to push and then the screw is out. So they then the industry uh, um, says, well, there's a screw in it. Um, but the ultimate goal, of course, is that the toddler cannot come in um, into contact with the button battery. So there is lots of room for improvement still. Lots of room for improvement there, and also, it occurs to me, in the original packaging of the button batteries, the ones that I know of are sold within a single clear plastic sheath applied to one side of a sheet of cardboard. Easy to push out through the cardboard, easy to get at. 
um, sh- I, I know we're all about saving the earth and keeping packaging to a minimum. But isn't this an exception? Shouldn't there be more barriers between small hands and button batteries? Yes, absolutely. Um, and it also depends a lot where these button batteries come from because um, in the developed world we do have them in uh, sealed as you now described but if you um, um, you can also buy them in, in rolls with 20 uh, in a row I had um, no idea yeah and then it's it's much easier to right. um, have one drop down um, so the, the uh, well known industry uh, um, um, they, they have these secured button batteries and the bigger companies also have like stickers on it that you really have to take off where with this warning on it mm-hmm. um, there is um, one uh, company that now has a bitterant on the button battery um, make the toddler spit it out well they hope so um, and, and maybe it will help but I, I I don't know yet. I haven't seen any data demonstrating that it indeed uh, does. So that's another that's another honey study, isn't it? Well, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I would like to see the data that it works before we say, okay, uh, <laughs> this is a marketing uh, uh, thing by. Uh, but best button batteries of this company because they are protected. I don't know. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Those are all hopeful, hopeful aspects of how we in developed countries are going to be dealing with button batteries. But in some place like Senegal, for example, as you say, a roll of 20 button batteries behind a, a mom and pop shore counter excuse me, behind a mom-and-pop store counter, and (laughs) less developed countries are going to have problems with button batteries as use of electronic devices expands and as pediatric gastroenterology availability of emergency services just doesn't keep up. It's sort of a gloomy prospect. Do you see any light at the end of the five-year tunnel here. Where do you think things are going to be with button battery ingestion management five years from now? Yeah, so that is a very interesting question. Of course, I want to be optimistic. Um, But I also think that especially these batteries are only um, becoming um, more regularly a part of our environment and that is i think a global challenge um for example also the current pandemic actually doesn't really help mm-hmm. um, children are um, in their own environment more and um, parents are really trying to do four tasks at a time with their online work and taking care of the children etc um, maybe that's the reason why a GOSH study recently showed that the foreign body ingestion really occurs more at the moment. So on the short uh, um, term, I'm not too optimistic, but fortunately you ask about five years. And then, of course, we don't have a pandemic anymore. 
since I'm an optimistic person. And then um, I really hope that legislation and industry involvement um, really has um, improved the packaging and the, um, um, the warning systems um, with um, maybe even a special coating on the battery, making it function where it needs, but not leaking and causing electrolysis after swallowing. So that would be my ultimate five years goal from now. Let's hope that that's how it works. You know, as part of preparing for these podcasts, I try to do a little bit of background reading, background information, even Googling of the person whom I'm to interview. And I went for listening to it on Google, and I went for images. Who am I going to be talking to, I said to myself. And there were panel after panel after panel of respectable, um, mature, very professional-looking women, all of whom were you. And then there was one different picture, which was that of a young Amazon playing field hockey. <laughs> so I had to check that one out. I said, is this a picture? She says that her, one of her hobbies is field hockey. Is this a picture from her younger days? And it's not. It's your daughter, isn't it? It's your daughter at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Whoa, I am oh. so impressed. <laughs> you did so, really thorough groundwork, actually. <laughs> so first off, field hockey and Drexel, and you have to tell us about this. Well, I am uh, very uh, fond of telling this story because absolutely I'm a very proud uh, mom. Um, we have two uh, daughters who both now are young adults um, and one is studying in the Netherlands, in Utrecht. She's studying law um, and is a horseback rider. And the other one is indeed a field hockey player who now is a student athlete at Drexel University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And she's now there for her third year. And um, she's doing her bachelor, um, which is four years in the USA. So one more year to go. And at the moment, She's here in the Netherlands because of Christmas, obviously, and she's only hoping that she can go back in January and play again, which obviously, uh, yeah, is questionable at the moment. But we all have to endure these challenges. Let me just say that I recommend to anybody who's interested in finding out more about Lissi de Gritter, check out that picture. It's really, really great. You've you've lived abroad. You've lived. I can't imagine that you haven't done training at a number of in, international institutions. But you're you're Dutch. There's no way around it. You're Dutch in to the core. And one of the things that we like to do as part of the Zespian podcasts is to ask our interviewees to pick out a little bit of their own home nation's culture that means a lot to them in the form of a song. <sighs> Take it away. What's the song that, what's the Dutch song that means the most to you? 
So that is such a difficult question because I am proud of our Dutch culture and we have so many beautiful songs. Uh, but then I would pick Laat Me from Ramses Shafi. And uh, Ramses Shafi is not among us anymore, but he is um, um, one of the most famous Dutch uh, uh, singers. And he um, sang this beautiful song, Laat Me, and it is on um, um, someone who really wants to live his own life, make his own decisions. Um, and he does that in such a, yeah, um, emotional, uh, involving way that is really beautiful. So I hope that the ones that do not understand Dutch still feel um, his meaning singing that song. I do look forward to hearing that song. Ik ben misschien te laat geboren Of in een land met ander licht Ik voel me altijd wat verloren Al toont de spiegel mijn gezicht Ik ken de kroegen, kathedralen Van Amsterdam tot aan Maastricht Toch zal ik elke dag verdwalen Dat houdt de zaak in even dicht. Laat me, laat me, laat me mijn eigen hand behouden. Laat me, laat me. Ik heb het altijd zo gedaan. Ik zal mijn vrienden niet vergeten. Want wie me lief is, blijft me lief. En waar ze wonen, moest ik weten, maar ik verloor hun laatste brief. Ik zal ze heus nog wel ontmoeten. If you would like to listen to the song in full length, please check out our SBGAN playlist. Um, I'm not so familiar with Dutch culture as I should be. I don't think I know many, any Dutch poems. Um, books from Dutch. I'm really, it's a, it's a gap in my education. But I do know one poem about what the heart says. And the heart says something in Dutch that I've never heard in any other language. And that is that the heart says, toch nog, toch nog, toch nog. There's still hope, there's still hope, still hope. Let's hope that that applies to the prospects for button battery ingestion and for so much else as we come through the pandemic and approach a new stage in how the world gets along. Thank you, Dr. De Ritter. Thank you so much for this uh, interview. I really enjoyed it a lot.